I'm Angela Saini. I'm a science journalist and author who looks particularly at how science sits in the world, the politics of it, the funding of it, and the biases in it. I have a foot in two worlds, one within academia and one outside as a critic. The Institute of Physics asked me to host this series of discussions, which we have called Looking Glass, to explore the kind of conversations we need to have to make science stronger by being more representative and more trustworthy in the future. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we're looking at indigenous knowledge. It's very easy, especially when you've grown up in Britain, as I have, to imagine that European science is science. But in reality, of course, there have been long and vibrant traditions of scientific and medical thinking all over the world for millennia. Living in India and writing a book about how science is practiced there taught me that sometimes we do need to step out of our assumptions and see the beauty and benefits of these different ways of thinking. It's about opening your mind to other perspectives and also sometimes about humility, understanding that our scientific worldviews are shaped by the cultures we live in. Historically, though, non-European knowledge systems have often been dismissed in the West. Today, that's changing. Some call it decolonization of the sciences, others simply see it as bringing useful new perspectives to their work. It's not easy, especially because the institutions of modern science can be resistant to change. But my guests in this episode are on the forefront of that movement. One of them is Carolina Behe. She's the Indigenous Knowledge Science Advisor for the Inuit Circumpolar Council in Alaska. And her job is in developing policies around food security and climate change to make sure that Indigenous perspectives are included at the decision-making table. Indigenous knowledge is different than science. It has its own methodologies, its own evaluation, its own analysis processes. It, it is its own. It's not about this objectification of researching people or researching animals. It's with a recognition that we're all part of the same ecosystem and we're all part of the same shared space. So for example, if, if we wanted to ask questions about a salmon, you don't just say, what's the population of the salmon? You have to ask, what is the vegetation doing around the salmon? What is the ice doing? What is the water doing? What is the taste of the water? What is the wind doing? What's the texture of the salmon? How is it acting around other salmon? Carolina is in conversation with me and Melz Awusu. Melz is an academic currently studying their PhD at Cambridge. They made headlines back in the summer with their mission to create a free black university. When Mel's first started studying philosophy at Leeds University, they knew the curriculum was going to be narrow. What they weren't prepared for was just how damaging this experience would be for them, a black, genderqueer student from southeast London. This wasn't just about the curriculum being made of white European thinkers, but what those thinkers have said about their racial and cultural superiority to others. This set Mel's on a path to thinking about how to decolonize a curriculum and the challenges of doing that within existing institutions. Throughout the years, I've come up against a whole lot of resistance. That's why I guess I've divested from like changing the institution. The institution can only be changed in so far. And I'm here because 
I can gain from the institution. I can gain knowledge from the institution. I can gain like financial support from the institution, libraries, that kind of thing. Time to think through these issues of decoloniality, of black liberation and so on. Carolina, can you talk a little bit about what you see as the kind of problem with Western science? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when I think about this, it's definitely a generalization when I start to respond because <laughs> it's it's not a hold fast, but some huge limitations that I saw in my own education and in the work that we do now is uh, silos and siloed thinking. And sometimes, honestly, sometimes that's beneficial. It really seems that Science has taken about 300 years to figure out how to eliminate variables in order to ask a very specific one question. And just indigenous knowledge doesn't work that way. And a lot of people's thought processes don't work that way. And a lot of the adaptive, holistic decision making that we need today needs a more holistic understanding as opposed to siloed information coming forward. I really want to understand on the ground what it's like for you as a researcher, the different ways in which you do research. Yeah, well, I'm so very fortunate because I work for an Inuit organization where everybody there feels it's very important to be working directly with Inuit at a community level. And so many Inuit communities across the Arctic, you know, uh, they might be populations of 100 or 600 people in a community. The larger communities have about 3,000, but there's very few of those ones. So these are small populations, and they're people to learn from and to uh, take guidance from. And so my research really isn't me doing research, to be honest with you. It's me bringing, it's almost me transferring information from one area to another area or from one group of people to another group of people. And my job is to bring that information forward in the most honest way without translating it. Um, Because when we talk about bringing together indigenous knowledge and science, and we go to put that in practice, one of the biggest hurdles we come across is the lack of respect and knowledge for different knowledge systems. So that means that oftentimes, even if a scientist says, oh yes, we appreciate the indigenous knowledge, they're still trying to translate it into their science, which, which, which isn't okay. Can you give an example of of how that happens? So an example would be when you take the information and you silo it. So let's say you're talking about walrus, then a walrus hunter usually doesn't just talk about walrus. They talk about the sea ice thickness. Uh, Walrus need to be on a certain type of sea ice thickness when they're birthing. They talk about the contents of the walrus stomach because people rely on that for food. But you also have to think about a young boy being taken out every year and catching his first walrus and bringing it back home. And at that point, that young boy is a provider instead of being provided for. All of that type of information is considered. But when a scientist might sit down and say, I just need to know the fat content, just tell me how many you saw, that that starts to translate that indigenous knowledge into that science, and it really silos it. And it's losing all of those pieces of information that are really in crucial within the indigenous knowledge, and focuses again on those relationships between those components that I was talking about. I can imagine it took such a huge amount of confidence to be raised in a system like that, that is always marginalising you, and then 
to stick with it, to say, no, I am going to get that science degree and I'm going to challenge the system. Where did that confidence come from? Probably my mother. Um, you know, my, my mother had to continuously talk to me um, to tell me this science is a tool. You, you will use it as a tool. That's it. And, and then once I got my job, to be honest with you, I work with an amazing group of people and everybody um, is there to support each other. And when I say it, this group of people, it's not just in my office. It's this very large group of people across the Arctic working to address these things, regardless of whether they come from a marginalized uh, group or, uh, or community or not. There's a lot of people there. And so there's a lot of times that I'll leave a negotiation meeting and think, oh, was I too aggressive? Was I too loud? They reacted to me so negatively. And I need to rely on the reassurance of my peers and colleagues and friends to remind me, no, that wasn't, that wasn't my fault. That wasn't my problem. Um, it's their problem that every, everybody else at the table is treating those negotiations differently than, than if we were all equitable there. Well, that's very hard to hear, Carolina. I'm so sorry that you've had to go through that. And it kind of just illustrates how much work there still is to make science more inclusive and equitable. Because when even voices that are at the table aren't being heard, then it just goes to show how far we have to go. So turning to you, Mels, you are challenging universities to think differently, to decolonize their curricula, to include voices like Carolina's, and even set up, or you're trying to set up, a university of your own, the Free Black University. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What is it? I fundamentally believe that education firstly should be free and neoliberal logics across education kind of change the purpose of education into like getting a job and essentially being a part of the system that already exists. Whereas I think education should be used as a tool for social change and the power that education has, the power that like thinking through things, meditating on things, producing knowledge has to transform the world, I think is like deeply radical. And so the Free Black University is an idea that has that at its heart, like has the transformative power of free education at the heart of it. And we need to be able to challenge the canon. We can't just add to the canon because if we continue adding, I don't see the world changing. And people need to have a space in which they can radically imagine what the future could look like, not just incrementally change and reform the systems that exist right now, but how can we imagine something different? How can we use a different process of knowledge creation to examine how a world could literally be so dissimilar to this, that the climate crisis is no longer a thing, that punitive measures of carceral punishments are no longer a thing, and we can exist in like a more healing and beautiful way as a people. I mean, for me as a science writer, what really intrigues me is what a decolonized science curriculum would look like. So in your free black university, what would that look like? That's a that's a complex question. And so even in this idea of like disciplinary education and so like splitting education up via like these kind of strict disciplinary lines is something that we're challenging anyway. And yeah, what is science and what is, what is truth? How do we curate and create knowledge? And that's going to be a long term question that we're going to be like continually asking. And it's a constant process of creation, a constant process of imagination and like pacing ourselves to ensure that what we're doing is like the most radical, the most transformative and like the most freeing thing that we can do for all communities. But do you think those kind of barriers will always be there, whatever kind of institution we create? Because by our nature, every culture has its own biases and its own kind of set of assumptions about the world and origin theories and 
all of these things. So are you just transposing one set of biases and assumptions into a new institution? I don't believe so. Um, whilst I think that, yeah, they're gonna get, they're always gonna be different, like whether I even call it biases, they're, they're gonna be different belief systems. And what we're trying to do with the Free Black University is create an institution that is built on like anti-racism, a university that is built on like queer and trans acceptance and queer and trans liberation. And so what happens when we change the logics of an institution? And so when we think about institutions that are built in the West, they're often built on whiteness, they're built on like um, heteronormativity, they're built on masculinity, they're built on like cis, uh, cisness, if, if that's a word. Um, they're essentially built by like white cis men. And that is the frame that the institution is from. So what happens, what, what logics are changed when queer, trans, black people create an institution of education? It's, it's to be seen. So wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what's fascinating is that Carolina is already working on that kind of cutting edge of seeing what happens when you incorporate different knowledge systems. Carolina, can you paint a picture of what your research is like? When I'm talking about bias within science, I don't necessarily mean it in this negative term as I talk about bias in other ways. So, you know, like I'm a, I'm a woman, I have brown skin. I have these deep beliefs that every single thing has a spirit, that the grass has a spirit, that the salmon has a spirit. I have this huge belief in um, requirement to respect those spirits and to also respect reciprocity that's a bias that I bring when I'm looking at any kind of research that I bring to the table. And so I don't mean bias in a bad way there. I mean, that's an important part of me to bring to the table. That's what we need everybody to be bringing to the table. But we have to be open and honest that that's what we're bringing to the table. I completely understand. I mean, almost, I mean, what you're really talking about then is perspective. You're saying that different people bring different perspectives. And the problem is when you have a narrow set of perspectives, they feel invisible. They don't feel like, they don't feel like biases or, or anything else. They just feel neutral. Whereas when someone else comes in, then it feels like bias or it, it feels fresh for the first time. Yeah. Or if you're not admitting that you have a bias, like let's say, and that there's nothing wrong with this at all, but let's say you come from this very strong Christian background um, and that's informing how you're making decisions, but you don't, you try to say, no, this has nothing to do with my research. It doesn't inform me in any way. That's a problem because it's, it skews how you translate and communicate that those research findings. There was this lovely phrase that I learned when I was living in the US called code switching. And it's essentially when you belong to different communities or different cultures, how you can switch between them, speak different languages between them. So, for example, at home, I will switch between Hindi or Punjabi and English and, you know, live and behave in different ways. I'll take on or almost adopt a different persona depending on the community that I'm in. And I'm just wondering for you in your work, Mel's, how do you, the language that you speak, how has that shaped the way that you're perceived, but also um, the kind of changes that you want to see around you? Yeah. So it took some time for me to be comfortable in the way that I speak and the way that I am. Like, Having grown up in Southeast London in like quite a black community and having like being just the way that I am existing in that in like a very like authentic sense and then entering spaces that were like very white, very middle and upper class for me was like very daunting. And for a time I would try and do a lot of that code switching and try and feel 
feel like I'm I'm a, not even feel like I'm a part of them. Like more so just feel that I'm not so different or that just so I could become more invisible, essentially. That's why I try and code switch. But it's been a journey and now I don't do that at all. And it's it's so important and it's so powerful for me to be able to like embody my whole self in a space and to be able to like bring who I am to this space because it disrupts the space inherently. And when I was out in South Africa as well, I learned a lot about how much um, the language was part of their decolonial process. And so the students were talking to me a lot about how they think different in like their local languages to how they think and speak in English. And this question of language is so, so, so important to the decolonial process because there's so many things that I want to be able to express, but the English language doesn't have the range, doesn't have the expansiveness for me to express. I completely understand that. So it's more about changing the space rather than having to change yourself. And Carolina, for you then, how does language mediate the way that you work? This We have so much to say about this. This is, this is such a huge part. I mean, even if you think of how some of the power dynamics are reinforced is remembering who controls the language, who gets to define the words that are being used. Um, this is this is really who defined food security. It wasn't indigenous peoples. There's like over 450 definitions for food security. They didn't come from indigenous peoples. People are expected to come to meetings and understand the science, understand the language that they're using, understanding their values, their culture, their management practices. Well, those people aren't expected to understand the indigenous knowledge, perspectives, values, any of those things. And that includes the language. And so people are sitting there trying to translate extremely complex concepts into English. And that often loses value while you're trying to do that. And it sets the power dynamic right away of who's the the native speaker is speaking English. They get to set the tone of what that meeting means and what it doesn't mean. And a really good example of this is, you know, one community might have eight words for beluga. And every single one of those words describes something about the beluga, describes how you're supposed to interact with it. When are you supposed to take it? What are you supposed to do with the meat? What? It, how is that beluga acting with the ice? It describes all these different things. But yet you go sit at this management table and you're just supposed to say beluga. You, all That drastically affects what kind of decisions are being made. And so I think with that example, it fits really well with what Mel's was saying, because also in that language, you're expected to leave at the door any spiritual connection, any discussion of love, any discussion about respect, you're expected to leave all of that outside in order to think that it's possible to make these black and white decisions when we shouldn't be making black and white decisions. I guess then, you know, science is seen by some people as this universal language, as rational and universal, and that it should be understood wherever you are in the world. But you're you're really saying that it isn't. It never was. No, I think that there was even some intention behind that, to be honest. If that was the case, education would be completely free and everybody would be able to go get a science degree if that was the case. Um, but it's not. And, and also even the way that uh, this language is used... Um, even when you are sitting at the science table, that there's still ways of putting this power dynamic at the table of, well, you only have a master's degree or you have a PhD degree. Or saying, um, I don't know, this language is used a lot to reinforce the power dynamic that's there between people or that they're trying to 
capitalize on. So you're saying that exclusion is almost built into it? Yes. I'm not saying that all scientists work on an idea that they believe in exclusion. But yeah, the way that our society uses science or decides who gets to be educated in science is includes a lot of exclusion and biases and prejudices. I mean, Western scientists or people who work in the Western scientific tradition all over the world might say that empiricism works. It's falsifiable. You know, you can propose a theory, test it, and then someone else can try and replicate it. And if they don't, then, you know, you ditch it and you move on. So what is wrong with that method? To me, (laughs) empiricism, like, doesn't always work. But to me, the, the problem is how we frame it right now. And I think it may be further in the future, like, that we can delve into some other problems with it. But I feel like the fact that we frame it as, like, the only discourse that can work is a problem rather than a discourse that can exist alongside many other discourses. And so even though because we see things or, like, because we can observe things doesn't mean that's the only way that we can produce valid and true knowledge. Like, valid and true knowledge can be produced through the spiritual. It can be produced through the emotional. It can be produced through, like, an infinite amount of ways. But we've kind of fixated on this one way of producing knowledge and then it's created the world that we have today which has a number of flaws and I guess I mean I see this in my own work as well when I interview scientists I'm always intrigued by the variables they want to focus on and the ones that they leave out and that's really the key here that you know you can only collect or we're we're made to believe that we can only collect so much information and so there is a value judgment there in the information you choose to accept and what you disregard This is very interesting because when we are bringing people together at that table, you also have to consider the way the discussion is being held. And it's very common that some scientists will be very dismissive in saying things like, yes, we know there's a butterfly effect or you can't include everything. And it's this generalization of dismissing what uh, these processes that we're trying to bring forward when in fact there is room to have multiple methodologies at the table. There is room to have multiple languages, to have multiple approaches, to have multiple ways of having a discussion. We know that's true. We know that people have been doing it for thousands of years, as a matter of fact, around the world. One of the things that science did do, even if it didn't mean to, is it became elite and it cut people out of saying only these people have knowledge instead of everybody in the world having knowledge that needs to be at that table. I mean, this is really the power of different knowledge systems, especially indigenous ones, which can be, as you say, thousands, even tens of thousands of years old, depending on which part of the world we're looking at. I mean, the big challenge here is here is a Western scientific system, which is only a few hundred years old, having to come up against systems of knowledge that are ancient. How do you get them to understand each other? I really like things that Mel's is saying. It's made me very excited because we talk about the need for large-scale institutional change for them to even address the objectives that they put forward. So if we think about like these international institutions, like at the UN, they have these objectives and we don't see them meeting the objectives through this single discipline approach or this single knowledge-based approach, right? But the other part that we don't see them meeting those objectives is is by lacking a lot of the philosophies that Indigenous peoples have to bring to the table. And so one of the really huge things that people need to do in order to be at that table is to leave their ego at the door, 
to not think about, oh, I know what's best, or this is my identity. It's not about your identity. It's about making room for everybody else there. One of the things we have to try to kind of grapple with when we're talking about a co-production of knowledge is people might assume it's this idea of, okay, everybody gets 50-50 and now we're equal. But it's not about being equal. It's about setting up equity. And if you have all those systems, all of those processes built off of one dominant culture values, then you're so far behind in the equity that you do need to let the indigenous peoples lead at that table for a little while. So you could try to build up the equity. That requires leaving your ego at the door. It requires the capacity to listen and to really hear. Mel's for you then, how difficult is it to get people on board? How hard is it to get whole scale change? I would say that I'm not even trying to get people on board in that kind of like casting the net out and then trying to call people in. What I'm trying to do is create a space in which people that are already on board are able to come and extend their vision. Because sometimes I feel like we can focus too much on like trying to bring people along on the journey with us that we don't think enough about where the journey is going, how far the journey can expand. And so I want to do that work of like that visionary imagination with people who are in a space to like visionary imagine um, and just believe that when people like see how messed up this world is and how much needs to change, they'll call on the ideas that the visionaries have set out to kind of change it. I, I mean, what I really want to understand is why now? I mean, I studied engineering. It's been more than 20 years now. And nobody, as far as I remember, was having or, you know, very few people were having these kind of conversations then. What has changed recently to make this possible? I think it's a range of things. I think that the decolonial process, like the locality of decoloniality in terms of the African countries, Asian countries getting their independence only started in like the late 1940s. For African countries, it started in the 50s and the 60s. And so there hasn't been a a long process of like this decolonial like message because after the colonial process, the conversation of neocoloniality was of course emerging within the former colonies and recognizing the ways in which the West still has hegemony over the world. And so I feel like it's been a conversation that has been happening for a number of years, but for me, it was that rose must fall spark that happened in, I think, about 2014, 2015. So in um, the University of Cape Town, um, students started um, rallying around to pull down a statue of Cecil Rhodes, who was um, a mass colonizer who killed many, many people in the, in Southern Africa and mined diamonds, et cetera, et cetera. And he's somebody who's like held up in high esteem across higher education, both in South Africa and in the UK. There's a statue of him at Oxford University. And so that became a movement that started off at the um, University of Cape Town and it expanded across um, to the University of Oxford and globally. And so for me, that was how the conversation in higher education like kind of tied up. But in terms of like decolonial thought and knowledge being produced in the academy, it's been going on for many years. The establishment of science as it works today is... um... There are there are many gatekeepers. So you have the institutions, but you also have the publishing process, which itself is very guarded. And uh, the system of peer review is a system in itself, which can be quite impenetrable for some people. Then, Carolina, for you, how do you get through that? Who who manages to get through that? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is a very important question because there are two sides to that. One is whose information is getting out there and how it's used. And the other part is accessibility to information in order to use it. And so when we talk about open access material and open access information is our communities are, is even the smallest community that might not have internet, or even if they have internet, do they have access to those papers? How the information is written uh, creates another challenge. But then we also have these large-scale institutions, such as the Convention on Biological Diversity, IPCC, groups like that that are writing or doing assessments based off of peer-reviewed articles. That means they're not including a lot of information that was not included in those peer-reviewed articles. And that that creates a lot of problem. And so some of the things that a lot of people are working on is trying to change policies so that they're including gray literature, white literature. They include the, the reports that we're using. But the other part of it too is deciding how much do you wanna buy into that system? Do we want to publish papers so that we're getting the information used? Then we're just supporting the system we don't agree with. That system also is built on this idea of individualism where there's one lead author, there's one important person. This report we just put out has 90 authors on it. There's not one lead person. That information belongs to everybody. There's so many challenges and it's a um, this peer-reviewed article process and publishing is a really good example of a system that's set up to support one dominant value system and knowledge approach. But in truth, it's defeating its own goal. You know, it's in my mind, it's not supporting scientists. There's so much more information that other scientists could be putting out there, but they don't have the resources or the connections to jump through those hoops. And Mel's just coming back to you then. You, you've already said that you want the free black university to be free. Do you think that would solve a lot of these problems around access? I think that the money conversation is one part of the conversation. With education, the reason I think it needs to be free is that because the money creates that neoliberal logic and there's other ways to create a neoliberal logic within higher education. And if those logics weren't challenged, if the idea of having a degree is to get a job or is to like embolden the current canon that we're in, as opposed to challenge it, then it being free wouldn't change anything or removing the money from education wouldn't change anything. The problem is deep and systemic and the money is a key, um, but still just one part of the issue. Um, Carolina, these kind of big issues that the world is facing right now, these kind of existential problems, pandemics, wildfires, climate change that really threaten our species. In what ways do you think broadening out scientific knowledge to include other spiritual systems or indigenous systems might help? We're in this problem because of lack of respect, um, because we thought that we could, as a human race, a large amount of people thought they could disconnect themselves from the ecosystem and think they were dominant to it. That's a huge lack of respect. um, And we're seeing it play out in a lack of respect towards each other also. And so I think that that's one thing for us to acknowledge. We're in this problem because we created this problem. And so when I think about the solutions, it it just is obvious to me that we need multiple knowledge systems at the table in order to address those solutions. I work specifically with the indigenous knowledge part of it. And again, that comes with all of these parts that 
I, I've mentioned reciprocity a few times, but there's these components that are culturally based that need to be there that have to do with respect. So even things as simple as, are you going to put a, a collar tag on a polar bear for the sake of science, because you think it's okay to risk that polar bear's life to figure out what their range of motion is? Well, there's a lot of elders that say that's not okay. It's not okay to risk one polar bear's life. There's other ways to do that. And so we need that kind of thinking at the table. We need that kind of respect around how we ask questions and also what questions we're asking. And so I think there's these kind of two different questions of how are you going to expand science? Because there is this need to expand science to be more open to different cultural views. But then there's this other part about transdisciplinary where you need to have biologists and chemists and anthropologists and philosophers, librarians, everybody working together. And then there's this other part about different knowledge systems. And, and that's, that's kind of something different. But regardless of what those are, we really do need people at the table that are ready to have those conversations. And to that part, what Miles was saying, I really agree. I've come to that conclusion myself is instead of trying to always browbeat people into agreeing, we need to get the right people at the table because there are a lot of people that are ready to be at that table. We just need to get those people to the table um, so that we can start demonstrating this is how you do it. Have you seen any good examples of that anywhere in the world? Yeah, some strong examples are happening in Canada right now in the Canadian Arctic with some agreements between Inuit and the Canadian government for some research that is happening in some of the regions where Inuit communities have driven the research questions and Indigenous knowledge is involved. You also see it in other parts of the world. There was an area in Chile where Indigenous peoples were given back the right to govern their body of water in fisheries that they had historically had. And you saw the biodiversity drastically increase as soon as they put their management practices back in practice. So you do see examples around the world. I just have to say they're not enough because <laughs> I think a lot of times people ask us, what are the best examples? And we think, well, we really need you to not focus on the examples to pat yourself on the back with. We need you to focus on what you need to do to make everything a good example. I think this is one of the issues that um, a lot of scholars in this area face is that they can see that picture. But unless you can also see that picture, it's very difficult to know what to do. Yeah, I agree with you. About four years ago, I was actually on a panel and I stressed about the need to build relationships between researchers and communities. And a scientist said to me, well, how do we build a relationship? And I thought he was making fun of me at first, but he honestly didn't know how because that's not what he does in his world. In his world, a relationship was based off of an exchange of benefits. That's not the type of relationship we're talking about. And so I, I think it does take a lot of education on our part to say, this is what we're expecting and what we think is possible. Mel's, is this something that you have seen? Because I have noticed, especially since the George Floyd murder and this kind of upsurge of the Black Lives Matter movement, that I have people coming to me. I know that other people I know, race scholars, critical race scholars, have people coming to them saying, what can I do? What can I do? How do you feel when people say that to you? Um, sometimes it's a bit frustrating because it should have been a question that you were asking a long time ago. Um, but at the same time, my, my response is always to look within yourself 
and like recognize yourself as part of the problem, recognize yourself as part of like the perpetuation of like a racist system, like challenge every aspect of your life, like reflect in the deepest and most profound ways about everything that you believe to be true. And that's what you can do. And I think people often want to like jump straight onto the, uh, how can I help um, these marginalized communities without reflecting on like their part in the oppression. Um, and so that's always my response. And like we focus so much on like, there needs to be a process, there needs to be like a measurable outcome to this process. But I think this process of like liberation, this process of transformation, anti-racism, et cetera, isn't necessarily, is not at all a process that is going to be like completed with like an actionable, clear, direct, like empirical result. It's something that is to do with the spiritual, it's something to do with the emotional, it's something to do with all of the aspects of the self that are devalued within Western society. Another thing that I often hear scientists say to me is that if they work in fields like physics or maths or, you know, statistics or areas like this, they'll say that this just isn't an issue here. If you're talking about animals or people or the environment, then maybe. But in our fields, you know, there, there is no racism. You know, race doesn't creep into numbers and it doesn't creep into statistics in the, in the same way. It doesn't affect our results in the same way. What would you say to that? Um, just that, first of all, there's ethics around absolutely everything. And so ethics are all, there's always questions of race, questions of inequality and so on. Whenever we're actioning anything in the world, like there's going to be ethical questions. And on the other hand, I'll also say that like this, again, similar to what I said, similar to what I said at the beginning, like this idea that like these discourses of knowledge, these discourses of knowledge that we believe to be true and to be fundamentally true and to be necessarily true are part of the problem. Like to present them as necessary truths is part of the problem. It evades all other forms of knowledge production. And so that in and of itself is harmful. Carolina, how do you keep going? I think having these kind of conversations getting to talk with you guys before we even came to today, it's really energizing. It's really helpful to remember, no, the problem's not you. Uh, there's a bigger problem here. And I think, I think it's that part of remembering that people really don't realize what this world is that they're in right now. Like when you think about that example you just gave of physicists or mathematicians saying there's not a problem here. I hear people saying it in anthropology. I hear them saying it across the world, you know, and they don't see it. They have huge blinders on. They're benefiting from those binders. And that's a huge problem. I mean, when Miles was speaking, I was really thinking that, you know, elders have shared that if you heal yourself, we heal everybody. And that's so very, very true. Mel's for you then, where does your impetus come from? What makes you get out of bed every day and say, I'm going to keep doing this? Mm. Um, in a similar vein, community, friendship, like being able to experience this life with people who feel aligned to like my soul, that feel aligned to the purpose, that understand what the mission is. That is deeply, deeply important. And for me as well, I don't speak of spiritual connection and like different processes of knowledge production as something to just be intellectualized. It's something that I live out on a daily basis and like connecting with knowledge, traditions, spiritualities and so on that existed in former colonies, well existed across like the African continent and that exist in the African diaspora. And recognizing that this path of decoloniality, this path of like black liberation is part of the path that I have to live out in this lifetime. And that's a blessing in and of itself. And so why would I not keep going for my people? 
Looking Glass is a Chalk and Blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producer is Fatuma Keira. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. Original music by Alex Port-Felix. Sound mix by Nicola Rofast. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan. And the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless.